Welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. And today, leading off, we're going to summarize some of the top stories in science. Well, the war in Ukraine, of course, has had enormous repercussions, geopolitical repercussions, financial, economic, and now we're talking about the implications for outer space. Yes, even the average consumer will feel the effects of the war in the Ukraine. Prices are going to go up, cost of fuel, cost of food, and now outer space. Both the Russians and the Chinese have made formal complaints about the way in which the United States is exploring outer space because it could be used for military purposes as well. And then let's say a few things about outer space. The United States Congress just finished hearings after a 50-year gap of UFOs and UAPs, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon. After a 50-year gap, many people were hoping, hoping to have the smoking gun. Evidence perhaps of an alien visitation, evidence of a debris left over from a crash flying saucer, or maybe even the bodies of aliens. Well, it was a big disappointment from that point of view. However, certain tidbits of information were released during that uh, hearings, which are very interesting and give us a clear picture of what could be out there. And again, the United States Congress is more interested in the question of national security, but some of the information that they divulge has implications for our understanding of the universe. And also, let's say a few things about the sun. When we think about the sun, we think about a giver of nourishment, a giver of light, a giver of goodness and tranquility. Well, every few hundred to a few thousand years, the sun has a temper tantrum. We thought we could predict it to some degree because of the 11-year solar cycle. Every 11 years, the sunspots peak, ca causing tremendous solar activity. And we think that, therefore, any such event would be preceded by solar flares every 11 years. Nope. It turns out that by looking at ice cores in Antarctica and Greenland, people have realized that perhaps these gigantic solar flares are actually random. And we cannot, therefore, predict them which means that we could be caught off guard with another what is called Carrington event, which was devastating to the telegraph wires, devastating to the beginnings of the electric culture that we were developing way back in 1859. And also news on the medical affront. The population of the world is aging. We have to worry not just about Alzheimer's disease, but we also have to worry about just ordinary memory loss as we get older. And you've probably watched TV advertisements. All these organizations are claiming that they can reverse memory loss. Well, scientists have looked at it, the government has looked at it, and they've shaken their heads. We're talking about hearsay evidence. We're talking about people who are paid to say these things on television. We're talking about data that is very, very thin concerning memory loss. But now, at UCLA, 
a group of reputable scientists have actually have a clue, a real substantial clue, how memories could be restored in aging mice. Now, we're not talking about humans yet, but in aging mice, it turns out that memories can, in fact, be brought back. And it leaves hope that one day there might really be a memory pill. Well, let's just jump right into some of the big stories of the past week. The big story of the past week, of course, is the war in the Ukraine. It's almost like a grudge match now between these two powers because it's a war of attrition. No one expects to see any breakthrough battle anytime soon. It could come down to a grinding halt, with civilians, of course, caught in the middle. And it means economic, financial, geopolitical repercussions all over the world. Everything we knew about the world is going to change because of the crisis there, including outer space. The Russians, the Chinese, and the Americans are now involved in a controversy concerning the internet and different services offered by satellites that could be used for the purpose of war. We're talking about Elon Musk, the billionaire, one of the richest men on the earth. <clears throat> he has created something called the Starlink system. The Starlink system consists of 2,300 small satellites that orbit the earth that carry the internet to poor countries and to areas that are not served well by the internet. The ultimate goal is to have 42,000 of these satellites orbiting the planet Earth, giving the gift of the internet to anywhere that you have a, a dish that can re receive the messages from Starlink. So we're talking about infinite information anywhere, anytime on the planet Earth. Well, some people don't like this because it could be used for war, they say. And as a consequence, they have made veiled references about what kinds of backlash could be created because of the deployment of all these satellite systems. First of all, Russia has apparently tried on multiple occasions to jam the Starlink satellite system. And so some people think that, yes, one of the great powers could be involved with trying to disrupt the creation of a planetary internet that cannot be controlled by the propaganda arm of any one country. And the Russians have even accused the Starlink system of aiding the so-called Nazis that rule the Ukraine. You see, Musk has given the Ukraine 12,000 Starlink satellite hookups. And the Russians don't like that because it means that anyone in Russia, even in the remote tundra areas of Siberia, will be able to get a clear signal because satellites orbit the Earth continually. And now the Chinese have ushered in a direct threat to Elon Musk and his Starlink system. The Chinese have even said that they're willing to take military measures, military measures to destroy the Starlink system if it thinks that it poses a threat to China. Now, on two occasions, on two occasions, the Chinese space station had to maneuver to get out of the way because there was a near collision with one of Musk's satellites in July and October of 2021. 
So the Chinese have made a formal uh, complaint that these satellites are getting in the way of the Chinese system and they can be used for the purpose of war. They can be used to track advanced weapon systems of the Chinese. They can be used to speed up communication between the Pentagon and drones and stealth bombers. So the Chinese don't like this at all. And of course, the Chinese and the Russians have the capability of doing something about it. In fact, there are at least four avenues that Russia and Chinese can take if it goes to warfare in outer space. First, using lasers to blind or outright destroy satellites. One. Two, using microwaves to jam the systems and the electronics of the satellites. Three, ASAT weapons, killer satellite weapons that actually destroy on physical impact an orbiting satellite. Four, cyber weapons. Cyber weapons to hack into the electronics of a satellite to confuse it, to wipe it out, to give erroneous commands, all sorts of havoc because of cyberspace. Now, Elon Musk has taken these threats pretty seriously, given the fact that critics of Putin have a tendency to die. And so some people have said that even oligarchs close to Putin, if they disobey Putin's wishes, can somehow die. Well, Elon Musk was asked about this, and he said, quote, If I die under mysterious circumstances, it's been nice knowing ya, unquote. So in other words, that's one more thing that a billionaire has to watch out, because even peaceful gestures like an international internet could be construed as a weapon of war under certain circumstances. Also, speaking about outer space, the United States Congress terminated after a 50-year gap a hearing on what they call UAPs, or in other words, UFOs and flying saucers. After a 50-year gap since Project Blue Book opened the door to studying this phenomenon, but the conclusion of Project Blue Book was, ha, all these sightings can be explained by natural or artificial phenomenon. However, this hearing, well, it was a disappointment in some sense, but it set a different tone. First of all, some people expected to see the smoking gun, maybe debris from a crash flying saucer, maybe alien visitation, a gesture of peace from out of space, uh, maybe a first contact. Nope, none of those things happened. In fact, the military left open the possibility that perhaps all of these things can be explained using natural phenomena. However, the numbers they gave out were rather interesting. First of all, 143 sightings are very difficult to explain of these UAPs. In fact, there's no known way to explain 143 of these sightings. But now, now during the congressional hearings, it was admitted that the true number is 400. There are 400 sightings which cannot be explained by the so-called usual laws of physics. So this is the first time that the military has owned up to the fact that we're no longer just talking about one person seeing a flying saucer at night. That's hearsay. It's not testable, reproducible, falsifiable. 
you can't make anything out, out of that observation if somebody saw something. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But no, now we're talking about seasoned Navy pilots undergoing multiple sightings by multiple modes. Now, what does that mean? Multiple sightings means not just one person, but several people saw something up there. And what are multiple modes? It means photographing these things optically, using infrared sensors to calculate their temperature and characteristics, eyesight, motion picture cameras, you name it. Multiple sightings by multiple modes is the gold standard. And that's what we're beginning to get from the military. Now, some of these photographs were released a few years ago clandestinely by someone within the government who was unhappy with the way in which these videotapes were being kept secret. Well, during the congressional hearings, a few more videotapes were released, and one of them was quite startling. It showed a metallic ball of some sort whizzing across the windshield of one of our jets, traveling at hypersonic velocity and then just disappearing. That's a new piece of evidence directly from the Pentagon. Now, by hypersonic, I mean traveling faster than five times the speed of sound. The speed of sound is roughly 700 miles per hour. So five times that is the definition of hypersonic. These objects, however, fly between Mach 5 and Mach 20. So we're now talking about the potential to fly like an ICBM and yet maneuver, stop, go underwater, and do it without creating any exhaust at all. And these, of course, are beyond the capabilities of our jets. As one military man said, quote, they're not ours, unquote. But of course, the military has to look at options, five options. One option, of course, being perhaps the Russians, the Chinese, or another country with advanced technology. But option number five, option number five left open the possibility of other, meaning, of course, perhaps extraterrestrial. We simply don't know. The other mysteries were revealed during this hearing. Many of these sightings are done near military bases and military installations. Now, why is that? Is it because the aliens want to know our military capabilities? Or is it just because we have lots of jets sponsored by the military? So it's random. Maybe these flying saucers are everywhere, except they're only picked up where we have advanced telemetry, advanced communications, and uh, jet planes to back up these observations. And then the report mentioned that on 11 occasions, on 11 occasions, our jet fighters almost collided, collided with one of these objects. And of course, the military denied that it has any alien bodies, denied that it has um, any debris left over from these aliens. So that's still a matter of hearsay. So I think we've made a little bit of progress. There was no smoking gun during that hearing, but it opened the gate and also it removed the stigma associated with reporting these sightings. Now, I'm a physicist. We believe in data. Data is what we live for. And using telemetry and the advanced optics of these sightings, we can show, apparently, that these objects fly between Mach 5 and Mach 20, 
that is 20 times the speed of sound. These objects can zigzag, creating G-forces of several hundred Gs within the craft. These objects can descend 70,000 feet within a matter of just a few seconds. They can apparently even travel underwater. The reports of these things hitting the ocean and going underwater. And these, of course, are things that we cannot duplicate with our jets. Well, some critics say, bah, humbug, it's all an optical illusion. Well, let's take that very seriously. What kinds of optical illusions can create all these hundreds of sightings? Well, one possibility is parallax. Let's say that a weather balloon sails in front of you at a leisurely 10 miles per hour. Okay, you got that? So there's a weather balloon drifting in front of you with the wind at 10 miles per hour. But let's say you don't know the distance to the weather balloon. The weather balloon, instead of just being a mile away, let's say is actually 100 miles away, you think. And it would therefore be traveling at 1,000 miles per hour. So in other words, the image of an ordinary weather balloon drifting at 10 miles per hour in front of you by about a mile, the image is very similar to an object 100 miles away traveling at 1,000 miles per hour. And so one of the leading critics have said, ha, parallax effect. You don't know the distance to these objects. And as a consequence, the brain fools you into thinking that it's very close, traveling at enormously fast velocities, when it's actually very close and drifting at a very slow velocity like a weather balloon. Well, the military investigated that. They calculated the wind velocity of these sightings, and they found out that these objects will often go against the wind. So if it was a weather balloon, the weather balloon should be drifting with the wind, but using telemetry, we know exactly the velocity of these objects, including the wind, and we know, therefore, that these objects are not simply a, a simple optical illusion. So what are they? Well, I don't know, but I'm a physicist. We live and die by data. We need more data, and that's what I think this event will do. This congressional hearing will hopefully destigmatize the sightings of UAPs, and we physicists will have data to work with, not just hearsay evidence. And also a quick word from The Sun. We reported a few times on exploration that the Sun has a temper tantrum every few hundred, every few thousand years, a temper tantrum that can wipe out communications, cause tremendous havoc across the United States and the rest of the planet Earth. But we thought we could somehow predict them because the sun has 11-year sunspot cycle. Every 11 years, the North Pole and the South Pole of the sun flip. That is, the North Pole becomes a South Pole, South Pole becomes a North Pole. And when the poles shift, it can perhaps create a shock wave that could interfere with telecommunications on the planet Earth. Well, the new results from looking at isotopes in the South Pole and Greenland shows that these events can happen even at a minimum of the solar cycle. In other words, sorry about that, we may never be able to predict when the next gigantic solar flare will hit. And that's bad news 
because if a gigantic solar flare were to hit the Earth, it would be like the Carrington event of 1859. It would potentially wipe out all power stations. It would knock out emergency systems, police, ambulance. Communications would be knocked out. The internet would be knocked out. Wall Street would be shut down. And refrigeration units, power supplies, everything, everything we associate with modern industry and our culture will come to a halt. There could be food riots. Food riots because food will start to decay as they thaw out because there's no electricity to drive our industries anymore. Credit card transactions will become worthless. The economy will come to a grinding halt. How much property damage? About $2 trillion in property damage, according to one estimate about what a gigantic solar storm will do if it were to hit us, not in ancient times when we didn't have much electricity, but in modern times when we live in the electric age. And also a few words about memory. You've probably seen on television over and over again, advertising saying, you take this, you take this, and your memories will be as sharp as ever. Well, is that really true? First of all, you have to take things with a grain of salt. A lot of these things are not regulated by the government at all. I repeat, not regulated by the government at all. As a consequence, a lot of this stuff could be anecdotal or fake. In other words, some of these people on television saying that their memory is now sharp, sharp as a dollar because they took this medicine, they could be paid actors. Paid actors paid to say some of these things or people who believe in it, but the data is sparse or even non-existent. It's just their word against the word of scientists who are very skeptical about these claims. Well, at UCLA, recently a breakthrough was made, which is getting a lot of attention, and that has to do with, well, how are memories made at all? Using brain scans and MRIs, we can actually see the formation of memories and detect where they are located. That's right, memories are actually located on the brain. And by stimulating different parts of the brain, you can elicit some of these memories. What we find out is that memory is not confined to one spot. There's not just one spot of the brain that corresponds to this memory when you were X years of age. No, memories are spread out. And when you recall a memory, you bring together different pieces of the memory in your brain. And that's why every time you recall something, the memory changes a little bit. We hate to admit it, but every time we recall something, the memory that we recall is slightly different each time we recall it because we literally reassemble the memory in the brain. Now, this means that as we age, the brain has to get rid of extraneous, useless memories that are not important. So there has to be a mechanism by which the brain actually eliminates some of these links between the memory. And that is, we think, the gene controlling CCR5. CCR5, when it's activated, will actually cause the link between the different fragments of memory to be broken. In other words, you forget. Why? 
because it's good for you because you don't want to be cluttered with useless memories. Who wants to have a billion memories coming at them, all of which are pretty much irrelevant and immaterial? You want to keep only the important memories. Well, CCR5 is the gene we now realize that does a little bit of house cleaning and gets rid of unnecessary memories. Well, there's also a drug that can interfere with CCR5, and that means that memories can be preserved as a consequence, that these memories don't have to simply disappear. And the doctors and researchers at UCLA have even found a substance. This substance is called Maraviroc, and it interferes with the action of CCR5. It's been tested in mice, and sure enough, middle-aged mice retain memories much better if fed Maraviroc, which interferes with this forgetfulness gene called CCR5. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that somehow we'll be able to restore our memories as we age? Well, yes and no. First of all, it seems to work on mice, but we are not mice. And this is a new result done at UCLA. It has to be checked. Sorry about that. But it does not mean that you can just buy this product off the shelf and assume that your memories are going to be sharp as a dollar. However, I should also point out that this chemical is available commercially without uh, having to go through a regulatory process. Why? Because it has a practical use in the treatment of HIV. This is a coincidence. It turns out that this substance is actually useful for HIV patients, but it is the same substance that in mice anyway can retard the forgetful gene so that we remember better. So what's the lesson here? The lesson here, first of all, is to realize that all the stuff you see on television, a lot of it is unregulated. Uh, for example, these beauty creams that say that they can take years off your face uh, and make you young again. How can they get away with this nonsense? Well, it's because these chemicals do not penetrate the skin. Therefore, it's not regulated by the government. But precisely because it doesn't penetrate the skin, chances are it's probably useless. Because in order to do this magic, it probably has to penetrate the skin, but then it will be regulated by the FDA. And of course, that's not what industry wants. Industry simply wants all these things that you can apply with the illusion that you are reversing the aging process. In other words, sorry about that. Now, the doctors at UCLA are very careful to say that yes, indeed, their therapy promises one day, perhaps, the ability to restore memories. So that is still a distinct possibility. However, science is based on things that are testable, reproducible, falsifiable, and it'll take many years to prove that this actually does restore memories, your most treasured possession. for the first part of exploration. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics 
And go to my website if you want to know more about exploration. My website is mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org. Or go to Facebook. I have 5 million fans on Facebook, and I've written five New York Times bestsellers. My latest bestseller is called The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. And it's about what I do for a living, which is to try to complete Einstein's dream of a theory which will unify all the laws of nature into a single equation, the God Equation. So, stay tuned. to Exploration with Dr. Michio Kaku. You know, in the second half of Exploration, we're going to talk about something that's on everybody's lips, the fact that America seems to be polarized. We seem to be dividing into two camps, and these two camps don't talk to each other, in fact, argue with each other. Well, personally, I've witnessed many splits within American society. When I was in college, for example, the war in Vietnam was raging, in fact, I was actually in the military, in the United States Infantry at the height of the Vietnam War, and I saw firsthand the schism within American society. But you know, we've always had schisms like this, between liberal, conservative, black and white, men and women. That's typical of any democracy. But what happens is, democracies which thrive, which can grow, which can learn about these experiences, these are the democracies that point the way to the future. So the fact that we have divisions is, of course, a given. The real question is, are we mature enough to be able to negotiate and reason with people of a different political persuasion? Well, with us today in the second half of exploration is Harvard professor Steven Pinker, author of the book, The Blank Slate. We're going to talk about human nature that is, are we hardwired in some sense to have these kinds of splits, and how do we reconcile with each other? So once again, with us today is Professor Steven Pinker, author of the book, The Blank Slate, and we're going to talk about liberals versus conservatives. We're talking about different outlooks on life, and we're talking about whether or not we can resolve these things peacefully and rise to a higher level. And now I'd like to introduce our very special guest today. We're delighted to have with us Professor Steven Pinker. He's a professor of psychology at Harvard University, formerly of MIT. And he's the author of a controversial and delightful new book called The Blank Slate, The Modern Denial of Human Nature. 
Of all the issues affecting modern industrialized society, perhaps one of the most contentious, splitting the left and the right from liberals to conservatives, is the question of how how far can you mold human behavior with social policy? Liberals, for example, like to believe that humans are in some sense a blank slate and that social policies can remold the human character. Well, conservatives say not so fast. If you take a look at the DNA data, if you take a look at twin studies of twins separated at birth, they say that there's a core, a core set of values that are in some sense hardwired or genetically programmed into our bodies. And it's, it's silly to fight against these core set of human values and human nature. Well, who's right? Well, once again, our special guest today is Professor Steven Pinker of Harvard, and the book is called The Blank Slate, The Modern Denial of Human Nature. The first question for you, Professor Pinker, is why did you become a cognitive scientist? I mean, after all, when we're little, uh, little boys play with G.I. Joe dolls and He-Man dolls, and, and you, here you are looking at the brain and pushing the frontiers of linguistics and, and how the brain functions. So how did you first get interested in brain science? Uh, I think it came from a, an interest in human nature, and part of it was growing up in the 1960s when people were discussing the optimal form of social organization, as if you could redesign society from scratch. And that depends a lot on uh, what, what you think makes people tick. So uh, how the brain works uh, was uh, a question, at least implicitly, that was in the air. Uh, the problem was that it had a kind of squishy or airy-fairy feel to it when it stated at that level of generality. When I found that in college that there was a field called cognitive science that could actually study what makes people tick in the lab and gather data and formulate testable theories, I knew that's what I wanted to do. Okay, and why did you decide to write a book called The Blank Slate? Well, I, in, in studying uh, how the mind works, studying how language works, uh, often you come up against objections that really don't come from the scientific claims themselves, but rather come from some fear that certain kinds of scientific claims are politically or morally dangerous. And I think that influences not just the public in how they react to the science, but sometimes the scientists themselves, their areas they don't want to go into, their questions they don't want to ask or conclusions that they resist uh, because of these, these political and moral colorings. So I thought it was best to put them out into the open, to confront what the implications are and are not about different discoveries about uh, the human mind so that we can separate the politics from the science. And speaking about the politics, there are trends. Uh, things come and go. At one point, we talked about the noble savage. At other points, we talked about the ghost in the machine. And at other points in, in history, people talked about the blank slate. So tell us a little, little bit about those three and how they've sort of come and gone over the years. And what are your particular points of view? Yes, all three of, of these ideas uh, really came from the uh, Enlightenment and the discussions among philosophers at the time over uh, the human mind and indeed over political arrangements and, and theological implications. So I've, I come up with catchy names for these three ideas, which I think have uh, continued to be in our culture a kind of secular religion, something that people believe in even if they don't uh, invoke God explicitly. The blank slate is the idea that we are not born with any talents or temperaments and that the entire structure of the mind comes from 
culture and socialization and society, that we have no innate tendencies whatsoever. The noble savage is the corollary that says that anything that uh, we find dislikable about human behavior, selfishness, lust, uh, greed, fear of strangers, uh, d desire for power, competitiveness, are all products of corrupt social institutions and are not uh, part of our nature. Uh, and that humans in a more natural state, such as the one enjoyed by hunter-gatherers, free from government and social institutions, would naturally live in harmony and peace. Finally, the third idea is the ghost in the machine, uh, which is that we are, in addition to our bodies and brains, um, immaterial beings called souls uh, or minds or spirits, and that you can't uh, reduce human thought and behavior to the physiological activity of the brain, but there's some extra invisible uh, ingredient, the soul, which infuses us and uh, allows us to make choices and experience the world. Now, this, of course, has uh, social repercussions in some sense that if you have a criminal, some people would say that you can reform that criminal, that perhaps their criminal behavior was a byproduct of poverty and that the human personality is malleable. Other people may say, bah, humbug, that there are some innate, innate things within us and certain things are doomed to fail. So where do you fall in this political spectrum and what's your take on those three philosophies? Right. Well, certainly criminal behavior is not a particularly uh, sensible scientific category. Uh, if it were, then uh, probably two-thirds of people under the age of 25 would, would be criminals for downloading music on the Internet, for example. Mm -hmm. But if we look at particular uh, kinds of behavior that, are, uh, that we can kind of define into independent of, of uh, criminality, such as um, of, uh, violent tendencies, um, on the one hand, um, there are many variations in violent tendencies that have nothing to do with genes or, or uh, uh, innate tendencies. The fact that societies can go from uh, being militant to peaceable in, uh, in a generation shows that it can't all be in the genes. You and I had an earlier conversation in which you pointed out that uh, Japan, for example, went from highly militaristic to one of the world's most pacifist societies in a very short period of time. Uh, and and uh, changes like that have happened many times in history. On the other hand, within a given society, there are differences in among people in their willingness to inflict harm. Uh, criminologists note that even in uh, very violent parts of the country, such as some American inner cities, a small number of the people uh, commit a disproportionate number of the violent acts. And also, uh, so it means that uh, within a culture, some of the variation uh, depends on the individual, and studies of twins, such as identical twins reared apart, and comparisons of identical and fraternal twins show that some of that variation is uh, due to differences in genes. Moreover, all people, I think, have uh, uh, the capacity to react violently in certain circumstances. We see that whenever um, uh, uh, the force of law and government disappears, uh, violence uh, breaks out, uh, suggesting that even in social conditions in which people inhibit their tendencies toward violence, they're there um, waiting to break out if not uh, properly constrained by the cultural context. So the answer, 
as in almost all questions of nature and nurture, is that it's an, a, an interplay of both. And it depends whether you're talking about the an entire ethnic group, about individuals, about different uh, times in history that you're comparing, and so on. Okay, let's be specific about some of the hot-button issues that you mention in your book, like feminism, raising of children, violence. Let's get right into some of these hot-button issues, including violence. Now, a liberal may approach this issue by saying, if you take a look at an unemployed male in a poor area, uh, well, there seems to be a gene for violence, and that is the male gene. However, the way to deal with it is not to have uh, some kind of eugenics, but to give them a job. Uh, studies have shown that when uh, male criminals get married, uh, their crime rate drops enormously, and the key to getting married is having economic stability, and the key to that is jobs. So liberal would say perhaps jobs is the way to deal with the problem, and however a conservative may come in and say, now wait a minute, uh, I mean, sometimes you can't rehabilitate people. Uh, sometimes it's a waste of money to do these things. Well, where do you fit on some of these things, and what do you think should be done on the question of violence in society? Well, I think uh, the, the positions aren't mutually exclusive, and I think both of them have merit. Certainly, uh, there, there are many data, um, including studies of changes in hormones, that show that uh, when men uh, hitch up and get married, their tendency toward violence goes down for reasons that many evolutionary psychologists have discussed, such as that uh, men, uh, when they uh, are competing for a mate, will uh, strive for a reputation for toughness and status and esteem, which will include uh, inflicting revenge on anyone who disses them uh, or uh, compromises their interests. And so if you have uh, men in a situation in which they're more likely to get married, they'll spend less of their energy competing on the streets, and indeed their testosterone levels and other hormones will go down in response. Certainly the idea that uh, providing economic uh, uh, conditions in which men can find jobs would uh, likely lead to a reduction in the crime rate, although criminologists will also say that there's a lot of fluctuation in the uh, crime rate that can't be explained by uh, economic conditions, such as in the last uh, three years, there's been a reduction in the crime rate, even as the economy has gotten worse. Uh, there's a lot of the fluctuation of crime rates that no one understands, uh, is my understanding. But in, in addition, um, holding all of that constant, whether the crime rate is high or the crime rate is low, there are some individuals who um, are have uh, an utterly callous attitude towards the suffering or well-being of other people. These are the people we call psychopaths. There is evidence that psychopaths can't be rehabilitated, uh, that they, psychopathy may be partly genetic, partly due to unknown causes. And in cases like that, um, I think one has to not be too romantic and say if, if we release someone who has uh, raped or tortured or killed uh, and we don't know what to do with them, we might be better off preventing them from harm, harming uh, other innocent women or children or uh, adults in the future. And uh, the willingness to incapacitate someone who has a high probability of harming someone else doesn't preclude uh, attention to more general social and political changes that might lead to a reduction in crime statistically across the whole country. Well, let me play devil's advocate for a moment. Uh, a liberal may come in at this point and say that, well, the bulk of crimes are committed by unsocialized uh, males of single mothers. 
And on each point, they are social problems. The fact that there is a single mother, the fact that you have an unsocialized male son of an of a single mother. Uh, these are things that can be rectified through social policy. Conservatives say, not so fast, not so fast. There are innate human characteristics which are very difficult to unwire. Uh, well, what are your thoughts about uh, whether or not it's possible through social policy to change uh, these unsocialized males of single mothers, or whether that's really the problem at all? Yes. Well, there, there are a number of issues. I mean, again, these aren't mutually exclusive, but there may be some individuals who are more prone to violence uh, in, in just about any social situation. There may be some that are uh, more prone to violence in some circumstances, such as after uh, growing up in a uh, tough neighborhood where you've got to defend your interests by a reputation for uh, machismo, uh, whereas in another circumstance they might uh, enhance their reputation by verbal argumentation or by uh, competing in uh, music. Um, Going back to the liberal-conservative divide, though, in in, uh, in fairness to conservatives, the standard uh, response I, I anticipate to your question would be that, uh, indeed, single motherhood is a uh, cause of crime, and that the cause of single motherhood is the our, our welfare policies that allow women to uh, support babies without uh, getting married, therefore uh, giving men a free ride. They can get uh, all the sex they want without bearing the responsibility of marrying the mother of their children and supporting them, if you've got the government taking over the role of husbands and fathers, there'll be less of a demand for husbands and fathers, and you'll have more single mothers and hence more crime. I think that is the more standard conservative response to your question. Uh, concerns about uh, eugenics and uh, bad seeds and uh, violent genes are actually pretty rare among conservatives uh, over the past few decades. Okay, let's also talk about the institution of war. Uh, a liberal may say that perhaps we should try more negotiations, uh, perhaps more reason. A conservative would say, bah, humbug, look at human history. Uh, war seems to be a constant, and it's a dangerous world out there, and might makes right, and nations only respect force. So what are your thoughts on the question of war? Well, I probably am not, not very well equipped to uh, give up uh, much of a general answer. Uh, I, I certainly think that, we, that um, the, uh, depending on the adversary, either of those strategies might be uh, appropriate. The thing about violence is that it's, in, it, it's an example of what game theorists call a prisoner's dilemma, uh, that often the best solution would be for both sides to back down simultaneously and to negotiate their differences. Unfortunately, it can also happen that if one side goes to war and the other one backs down, the uh, victor will get the spoils. And so even though uh, it can be to everyone's advantage if both sides back down at once, if one side refuses to back down, the other side may have little choice but to uh, confront them head on. Ideally, what you would like is enough knowledge of the lessons of history and of the way in which everyone could come out ahead by dividing the contested resources that both sides would back down simultaneously and everyone could have the best possible outcome. The problem is, if you're facing an adversary who fails to see it that way, uh, in that case, unilateral pacifism can be the worst possible. Uh, possible outcome, such as in the case of, of, say, opposing Hitler during prior to the Second World War. So I think there's no 
general answer. It depends on the particular guy on the other side. Uh, one just has to realize that the, these two options might be uh, differently uh, desirable depending on who you're facing. Well, several years ago, there was a controversy about, I think it was a government-funded conference on genetics and violence. Now, um, of course, there is a genetic link to violence, and that is the male gene. However, African Americans and civil rights activists uh, said, whoa, we don't want our taxpayers' money to fund this because it gives you the indication that perhaps races uh, could be, uh, quote, more prone, unquote, genetically to become violent, and that here was government money fostering what they thought was a bogus idea. Well, what does the science say about the question of race and violence? Yes. Actually, that conference was on the biology of violence, not uh, not specifically on the genetics of violence. Mm -hmm. And so it also looked at, at uh, effects of abuse, effects of, um, of mothers ingesting drugs during uh, pregnancy. Uh, it, the approach of that conference was actually to look at violence as a public health problem, like uh, tobacco or environmental uh, pollutants. And in fact, it had a, a rather liberal agenda. The people opposing it really didn't know what it was about and really uh, spread rather paranoid rumors about it being uh, about racial differences in tendencies toward violence, mm -hmm. which, which none of the participants uh, had actually planned to talk about. Uh, I don't think we have uh, any reason to believe that there are uh, innate differences among ethnic groups or races in their propensity toward violence, uh, simply because if you look, take a historic view, uh, cultures can switch from militant to pacifist or vice versa in a remarkably short period of time. I think uh, if... if uh, a hundred years ago, one would have said that one day the uh, Germans, the Japanese, would be the world's uh, strongest pacifists, and there would be a uh, nation of pugnacious soldiers uh, from uh, the descendants of, uh, of Jews in the European ghettos. Uh, they would have laughed you out of the room. But that's the situation we have now, and it shows that the uh, differences in ethnic groups are almost certainly due to differences in the circumstances that, that they face. So, therefore, what is genetic? What is hardwired into the brain? Some studies, I think, on Dutch uh, families have shown that there is a streak of violence in some families, but part of that is related to testosterone levels that are controlled genetically, we think. So, therefore, if the question of violence is malleable, that societies can become warlike one day and pacifist the next, then what is hardwired in the brain? Well, I, I tend to avoid the word hardwired because it implies that given a uh, a, um, a, a particular organism. They're like wind-up dolls or uh, robots that can only behave uh, in the same way across every situation. I think that the what is innate is a set of strategies for dealing with the environment that, you face, uh, that you're currently facing, and that in different environments, different uh, psychological responses will be triggered, uh, which will lead to more or less violence depending on the social circumstance. One of them will be the degree of threat that you perceive. Another will be the presence of uh, an armed authority, a uh, police force or government that you can call in to settle your scores for you. Another will be whether uh, you feel that your uh, honor has been compromised, whether you've lost face, and that uh, if you don't regain respect and face, uh, you'll be a, a punching bag or a sitting duck. When that perception is triggered, people are likely to engage in violence just to prove how tough they are. When they uh, feel that they don't have to 
show off a pugnacious side in order to defend their interests. When they can call 911 for the police to show up, then they're less likely to challenge each other to duels or to uh, kill each other over uh, uh, trivial insults. Uh, So those are some of the uh, uh, kind of the if-then rules that we're equipped with that uh, don't make anyone uh, or very few people likely to burst out in violence across the board, but can lead to violence being triggered if the circumstances are right. Okay, now let's talk about another hot-button issue, and that is gender, and that is the role of women. Uh, In your book, you actually make a differentiation between two kinds of feminism. So could you elaborate now on the question of the blank slate and feminism? Yes, there's uh, many people believe that feminism must be committed to uh, the doctrine of the blank slate, that uh, if if we come into the world with nothing uh, in our minds or brains, then there can't possibly be differences between little boys and little girls that are due to uh, biology. And therefore, that's the best way to ensure gender equity. Therefore, according to this line of reasoning, one should resist any tendency to say that men and women have any innate differences. Or, just to be on the safe side, resist any tendency that anyone has any anything innate whatsoever uh, in order to maximize the um, uh, the chances of ensuring gender equity. I, I dispute this line of argument uh, largely out of sympathy to uh, feminism rather than hostility, that I don't think feminist ideals should be held hostage to what comes out of the lab on uh, the source of, of gender differences. And I borrow a distinction from a philosopher, Christina Hoff Summers, who distinguishes between equity feminism and gender feminism. Equity feminism is the classical liberal position associated with the first wave of feminism, that discrimination against people on the basis of gender is uh, is evil and is uh, counterproductive to society, that no one should be discriminated against based on the traits of an entire gender. Uh, gender feminism, on the other hand, is the belief that men and women are born uh, identical and that all differences between the sexes come from socialization and that there is a vast male conspiracy to hold women down, which is the source of all differences between the sexes. The problem with gender feminism is that it's an empirical hypothesis. As the hypothesis begins to be disproven, uh, in fact, it's already been disproven, uh, it makes feminism uh, vulnerable. Uh, Anti-feminists could say, well, the basis of feminism, that boys and girls are identical has been refuted. Therefore, let's go back to the 50s. I think a way to protect feminism is to say that questions of equity, of non-discrimination, are independent of statistical differences between the sexes or their source. And we should separate our commitment to equity from our empirical studies of where sex differences come from. Okay, well, let's talk about little boys and little girls. Uh, most liberals think that uh, the propensity for girls to, to gravitate toward Barbie dolls and boys toward He-Man dolls and G.I. Joe is cultural. However, then they have children of their own. And then they realize that whatever it is, it starts awfully early, awfully early that little tykes will begin to gravitate toward certain kinds of gender-based toys. And the question is, is that a byproduct of our media saturation, that everywhere you go you see images of women and men in certain roles, or is there really something in the human brain 
uh, that means that boys and girls have different outlooks toward toys. Uh, I think there is something in the brain. One uh, bit of evidence is the experience of parents who try, who do everything in their power to present uh, sex-reversed role models to their children and then discover that children left to their own devices will just gravitate towards the same uh, activities. Another is the fact that you see even in other species sex differences, that uh, vervet monkeys, the, uh, the young males prefer to play with objects compared to the young females. They certainly haven't been exposed to television. A third kind of evidence is that the direction of the sex differences is universal across cultures. If it really was arbitrary which gender did which activity, you'd expect some cultures out there in which it's the little girls that uh, engage in rough and tumble play and play fighting and the little boys who engage in uh, mock social activities, but it never works out that way. That's it for Exploration. Once again, this is Michio Kaku for Exploration. Our special guest today was Harvard professor Steven Pinker, author of a number of great books, including The Blank Slate. And if you want to know more about my work, go to my website, mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org. On Facebook, we have 5 million fans on Facebook, and I've written five New York Times bestsellers. The latest New York Times bestseller is called The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. Thank you. Good day.